If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wallace Thompson was a founder member of the DUP in 1971. He was with Ian Paisley almost from the outset of his political career, and he stayed close to Paisley right up until his death. His strong religious views mean that he's no stranger to controversy, but now his unusual honesty has led him to say things which are politically explosive in another direction. He thinks a new Ireland is inevitable, and he's willing to consider it. I'm Sam McBride, and I sat down with Wallace Thompson at his East Belfast home for an unusually candid interview. Wallace Thompson, you are a founding member of the DUP. You are the secretary of the Evangelical Protestant Society. You're a former Northern Ireland office civil servant. You're a former special advisor to Nigel Dodds when he was the finance minister and the enterprise minister. You were a senior figure in the Caleb Foundation. You've worn lots of hats, some of them you still wear, and you've also been unusually outspoken on some issues in recent times as a pretty traditional conservative unionist, but somebody who believes that some of the things that unionism has been doing have not been to its advantage Malachi O'Doherty uh, described you once as an oddity. Uh, he said, I have met and interviewed him. I've interacted with him often on social media. I find no lack of intelligence in him and nothing abrasive. He simply lives with a worldview that is remote to me. What do you say to that? Well, I, I think Malachi may not be too far from the mark on, on most of that. Uh, I, I recognise and have talked to Malachi about these matters at, at, at length. Um, that the whole the worldview I hold would be a minority worldview, and I probably always was, you know. But I think more so than ever. And you referred there to Caleb, you know, and well, Caleb was founded twenty five years ago, and at that point on moral issues, we thought we were pretty well removed from the mainstream of thinking. But twenty five years on, much more so now, marginalised, and um, so yes, we, we would hold to a view that a lot of a lot of people wouldn't really understand. 
And was it the troubles that drew you into politics, or was it university, or what what pushed you towards? It was the troubles. I remember clearly the day of the civil rights march in October '68. My dad was in the garden, and I saw the news, and I ran out. I said, "Dreadful things are happening in Londonderry." And uh, as a what was I, I was fifteen years of age at that stage, I, I just thought the world was collapsing around us. Um, I was very perturbed, so I became more and more involved in politics. Now, I was aware of Terence O'Neill. I'd been to a number of events through the Boys' Brigade where Terence O'Neill had spoken, and I thought in those years before the Troubles broke out that the man was talking a lot of sense. Uh, but then when the Troubles did break out, the Civil Rights Movement and then the, the follow-on from that, I began to sort of feel that this is serious business, uh, and I was drawn towards Ian Paisley politically, uh, initially, but just sort of fascinated by the man and by the fact that he, you know, he was also like a, an evangelical Protestant, so I became interested in that side of life. I mean, we would have been churchgoers, but my own faith was sort of kindled in an evangelical sense through my interest in Ian Paisley politically. So the political thing moved quite quickly to a spirited interest, and then I would have become an evangelical Christian really through those early influences of, of what was happening on the ground. So politics, but then very quickly the evangelical viewpoint and, and my own conversion. And well, take, take me back to what the DUP was like at the outset, because today people who have followed politics maybe in the last 10, 15 years view the DUP as part of the establishment in Northern Ireland, this big, powerful force, runs government departments, Sinn Féin likewise. It's very different back then, wasn't it? Totally. I mean, complete polar opposites. It was the DUP. Well, the Protestant Unionists I was involved in, first of all, and the Ulster Protestant Volunteers, which to me were just like a marching organisation, a bit like the Orange or whatever, and but it was Paisley's own grouping. We would have been very anti-establishment uh, and believing that the big house unionism uh, for a Coke brigade had, had damaged the unionist cause. And in many ways, I suppose, I didn't realise it at the time, but it was there was a tradition of independent unionism right from the start of the, from 1921 onwards in, in Ulster politics. So in some ways Paisley and the movement around him were a development of that anti-establishment mindset. You then ended up in the Northern Ireland office. Tell me how that happened. And there's, there's, there was this common unionist perception throughout the Troubles, which persists in many cases to this day, that the NIO was somehow inherently anti-unionist. Not the sort of place you might expect to find a Paisleyite founding <laughs> member of the DUP sitting there. Well, again, I believe in divine providence. So, well, it just happened to be, you know, there was no great sort of scheme behind it. I, I left, I mean, I'm going jumping a bit forward now because I worked for the DUP for a while. Then I decided then that the future lay for me in a more settled job. I became slightly more pro-establishment in the sense that I joined the civil service and you get posted to different departments. Started off in education and then police authority, and from then opportunities arose in the NIO. But the NIO was like obviously two different departments. There was the old Ministry of Home Affairs, which I would have been in, and there would have been the political side, which I never was near. Now, whether they thought I would be, wouldn't be appropriate, or I don't know, maybe it just was one of those things that I, I was in policing and injustice, and therefore never close to the inner circles where political stuff was being driven and, you know, by those who were at the centre. And did, did you ever, as a, as a unionist, as a very traditional conservative unionist, did you ever feel uncomfortable there? Did you think it was a place where people like you were treated unfairly or pick up things that you didn't like? 
Well, occasionally you would have been aware of things you weren't happy with because the NIO's agenda was to, you know, create, you know, say, power sharing arrangements or to move forward on a broader basis than I would have felt comfortable with. But I just had to sort of turn a blind eye to it. I mean, it wasn't something that I... Well, there were times, yes, it, it, it sort of upset me, but I thought, well, I've been treated fairly here. Um, I'm going to have opportunities to fulfil the role that I, I'm, I'm doing. Um, and... There were problems maybe in terms of if, if fellow unionists were aware that I worked in the NIO, they would have said, you know, what are you working for that bunch of traders for, you know, and uh, sometimes jokingly, sometimes not so much so. But uh, so, so I suppose I, I accepted it, wasn't entirely happy, tried to not say too much um, and just get on with the job. I mean, what the work I was doing wasn't going to be impinging on the broader political agenda. You then left the Northern Ireland office after your career there and many years later, 2007, the DUP found themselves in government with Sinn Féin, this big, momentous occasion, and you entered Stormont as a special advisor to Nigel Dodds. Spads have got a pretty bad name, I think it's fair to say. Over over the last number of years, there have been scandals where they've been involved, Red Sky, RHI, etc., what, what was your experience of it in those early days of the DUP and Sinn Féin sharing power together? I think in my time, which was the very beginning of it, there were everyone was feeling their way as to how, what the role would be. Um, even the issue of pay was, a, was a, you know, a moot point and you were finding out that others were getting this amount or that amount. But uh, I came in uh, and when I, when I started, I don't think there was a really clear view because at that point, and it may, I think it may be changed later, you were tied at the hip to the minister. And whenever Nigel stepped down after a couple of years, I just stepped aside. But that, I don't think that happened later on. They moved them around. Um, but there was, I mean, the whole idea of spads, Tony Blair and so on, uh, would have uh, sort of brought that idea into centre stage. And when I worked in the NIO, we used to have really little or no time for them. They were just interfering all the time. Uh, and so in a sense I had, a, I had an idea how they were how they were seen from the other side of the counter so when I became one I was conscious of the need to not not to create uh, an abrasive approach but uh, I think they, they, they have a very important role uh, in shaking up bureaucracy uh, but they need to know their limits and there needs to be a clear demarcation now, I, I think it's much more clearly marked out now there are codes of conduct. Uh, in my time, I, I think that we were definitely just trying to work out what what line could you not cross. Because, I mean, I got involved in religious disputes on RTE. We'll um, come to that uh, uh, But that's, I'll just mention that now, because that, that led me then to wonder had I breached, mm-hmm. and I raised that with the, the senior folk, and they said, well, you probably have. Mm-hmm. But there was a bit of ambiguity about that. So... Uh, that was a learning curve for me and for I think for them as well, looking to see what happens here in a scenario when somebody comes out with these things. Well, actually, uh, maybe uh, maybe, uh, maybe let's let's uh, let's talk about that now. So you were you were on live line with Joe Duffy on RTE yes, and um, Radio One, and you were talking. I think it was a Church of Ireland cathedral in Dublin, if I recall correctly, was selling rosary beads. Yes, you, right. you were you were opposed to this. Yes. And in the course of the discussion. You came to say that the Pope was the Antichrist, yes. and this was this was controversial. Yes, not not just in a broad sense, but I mean, there, there were orange men like Reg MP from the Australian Party who were saying that this was undermining the potential for investment in Northern Ireland, right. and all all manner of criticism from all manner of quarters. 
have have you any regrets for what you said or how you said it? Uh, yeah, I, 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 well, I don't regret. I don't regret speaking as I did, but in the context in which I spoke, I think it created problems and. Uh, I think it was Gail Walker who suggested that people should engage their brain before they open their mouths. And it was referenced to me and Ian Pixley Jr. Um, separate issues. But I remember people speaking to me at the time and they said, was it the wise thing to do in the context? And I think in the context, if I had to do it again, I would be more careful. I wasn't so sure at that stage that I was doing anything wrong, but it all happened because it was the rosary beads issue. And then people rang in, you see, and um, somebody said do you believe that the Pope is the Prince of Darkness? And I said, no, no, but I believe he's the Antichrist. See, trying to, see, to, to stick to a theological line, but that's like a red rag to a bull, bearing in mind the media that I was on. Um, and yet there were people who came on who, who were gracious enough to me and people who wrote to me afterwards who said that we, we appreciate what you said. It was coming from a wide spectrum, you know, but just in the context, Sam, I think if it hadn't been for that context, I would have been content enough with the interview. I suppose the, the, the nature of religious debate, and it's true in politics as well, is that people have got completely opposing views sometimes about uh, an, an issue about God or an issue about how society should be structured. Is, is, there, is there a way in which, in a modern society, these things can be debated respectfully without people feeling like their free speech is being curtailed? Yeah, I think that's a very interesting area, and it's one that I've been thinking a lot about. I mean, I look back and, and I kind of reprove myself a little bit because I feel that maybe the tone of what I said and what I said uh, in, the, in the blunt way it was said created a degree of offence, which I wouldn't now do. I would be careful to get a context to it, first of all, before I would say anything. I think the trouble is, through social media and so forth, it's become more confrontational, more abrasive. Uh, but I personally have tried my best to set out my beliefs with a degree of grace. Uh, and maybe as you get older, you, you become more inclined to do that. When you're younger, you're more, you know, hot-headed and so on. But I, at that time, you know, despite my reservations, I thought, I mean, I've taken a strong stand here, you know, and, and that's what I feel odd. Uh, but there's just ways and means. Um, and I, I think we've moved on. That was 2008. We've moved on even since then. My social media uh, has created that very sort of volatile, confrontational, abrasive type of debate. I think outside that, it's our duty to, to argue, debate, but to do so with, with tact and with grace. So I suppose if anything I've changed in that regard, I don't think I've changed in what I believe, but there are ways of doing it. And I think all sides need to, to be conscious of that. You became a leading figure, maybe the leading figure, in the Caleb Foundation, which was a sort of pressure group that was lobbying the government on different issues. So things like opposing the relaxation of Sunday trading restrictions, um, trying to get creationism included in exhibits at the Giants Causeway Visitor Centre, um, um, trying to lobby against abortion, all sorts of issues like that. And you were described by the British Centre for Science Education uh, as someone who was peddling Christian fascism uh, and the organisation they said had tentacles everywhere. Um, what's 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 the position of Caleb today? Is it dead or is there no, still something there? No, Caleb is still there. Um, now, twenty five years ago, it was launched with all trumpets blaring and 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 so on. But uh, it, it its role still continues. Now it's it's small. Uh, we're now marking our twenty fifth anniversary, uh, but we continue to lobby. The, the purpose of it was really at that time to give a voice 
to evangelical churches outside the main Protestant denomination. So that was our remit. And to this day, we try to kind of hold to that, though we would have supporters across the Protestant denominations. But the aim was to give that voice to the smaller churches. We've succeeded in doing that through, say, Sunday services on the Radio Ulster, Thought for the Day, um, and then we have lobbied on abortion and and, uh, a number of issues, including Sunday observance, which is maybe one of the more rarefied subjects today but it's it's still there so we continue we met with we met with Adam Smith there back in February and we have regular meetings with the BBC that's how it all started because George Dawson uh, Mervyn Story himself would have gone informally to meet with um, the head of the BBC whose name escapes me way back in there Peter, Peter Johnson was before back Peter, then? Okay. Peter we met Peter but it was way beyond that and he okay. said to us he said the GAA and the Irish language people hammer our door come back and keep hammering the door and we, we did, well, we, we, we did, we knocked the door and got in. And so I suppose while Caleb has kind of faded a little bit from the limelight, I recognise that. Um, my view on it is that it's not really, it's not really one to, want to be flying a flag or, or, or making a loud presence. It's just a matter of quietly doing what we can do through whatever means are open to us. But we're hoping this year now, in October, I'm hoping to maybe write something for some of the papers just to kind of remind folk that, you know, who we are, where we've come from, where we are now. We're, we're in a different place. I mean, the world has changed in 25 years, so, and that's, that has to be recognised as well. Lots of Catholics in Northern Ireland, across Ireland, but particularly in Northern Ireland, looking at an organisation like yours, and there's, there's, there's two organisations that you're involved in. There's yes. Caleb and there's the Evangelical Protestant Society, but there's lots of crossover, I think it's yeah, fair to say, between right. them. They'll think that they're just anti-Catholic. They're involving the sort of people who would like to go back to for instance, discriminating against Catholics, the old order of Northern Ireland, they're railing against modernity. What what do you say to those people and those criticisms? No, well, I, I would I would reject those. I can understand how people perceive us. And, you know, even when I mentioned about the Pope on RTE radio, those soundbite things can create a... You know, they're not... It's not a suitable subject for, for soundbites. And sadly, a lot of what is, is, is done today is done through soundbites. And... Uh, people have perceptions, but you know these things are complex issues. But I, I honestly would say that I have no anti-Catholic uh, views at all. In fact, I have many Roman Catholic friends. I would hold them in the highest esteem. Um, I respect their religious views. I respect their right to hold them. I disagree with them, and I would discuss with them. They were back to this issue of discussing gracefully and in a respectful manner. Anti-Catholicism is a terrible thing, Sam. And you see sectarianism in its naked form, as we have seen in this country. You know, only in recent months, indeed, it's dreadful. And I've spoken out about that. I've, I mean, I've condemned the, the the attacks on Roman Catholic churches. I've attacked, condemned the sectarian singing in an orange hall in Dundonald. So I have, I have many examples I could give of where I have spoken out strongly against that form of sectarianism. You know, there's a big difference between that and a difference of religious views. Well, let me let me put to you one of the examples that you cite there because you're you're absolutely right when you say that you've spoken out against sectarianism. When Martin McGuinness was dying in 2017, you said publicly, it is obvious that Martin McGuinness is, is seriously ill. There are those rejoicing in this and hoping that he suffers a painful and lingering death. I've been around long enough... Uh, sorry, I've been around a long time and I'm under no illusions about Martin McGuinness. However, if we, pres- if we profess to be evangelical Protestants, we need to reflect upon the words of Christ who said, and you then went on to quote Christ saying, love your enemies. Yes. Um, 
that is a sort of comment that you don't hear very often from people in the Orange Order, in um, the DUP, in unionism in Northern Ireland. You, you, you must have had quite a backlash to that. That, that was publicised at the time. There wasn't very much that I was aware of. Um, I have to say, people might have been talking about me that I, I didn't hear. Uh, I know that some of the comments I have made, people have described me as a useful fool uh, for being you know, somebody who's just peddling a line that suits uh, the other side's agenda, and therefore I, they see him as a fool, but uh, that doesn't worry me. But there were very few, I mean, people like Ruth Dudley Edwards and all were very supportive. Um, uh, and so, again, that came from the heart, you know, that there, there's a need for us to show show compassion. And uh, I noticed that, I mean, one of the, the big influences, as we know, in my life was Ian Paisley, um, and I mean, people say that he, you know, he changed. He was this bellowing demagogue. He became this quieter man. And I think he himself would acknowledge that there were changes in his own approach. Um, but I, I always find Ian Paisley to be very gracious towards everyone um, at a personal level, right down through the years, knowing and working with him. There was plenty of evidence there of a man who showed grace. I mean, it's public utterances, I know, and this is where we've got to be careful, you know. But uh, so Roman Catholic people shouldn't in any way fear the likes of myself. Uh, the, the, the main danger is that naked sectarianism is born of a godlessness that seems to be so prevalent because society has become less religious. So therefore that continues on in a, a manner that I think is... So you, you basically think that the threat, the sectarian threat to Catholics in Northern Ireland comes from people who say they're Protestant, mm-hmm. but it's not really a religious term. A true Protestant will never, never threaten anyone. And, and while we will hold to our views, um, anyone who threatens a Roman Catholic and makes them feel uncomfortable, there's something seriously wrong with their Christianity. You've, you've said that if a Catholic ascended the throne in Britain, that your sense of Britishness would be severely diluted. Um, that was something that Malachi O'Doherty said. Yes, uh, it, it was, was, was something that basically showed that your unionism is ideological, it's linked to religious belief in a, in a historic sense, rather than being about ethnicity. Yes. Uh, but isn't that sort of you based on ideas that are maybe out of date is the wrong way of describing it, but in the in the sense that the Catholic Church is not burning heretics at the stake, the sort of things that were happening three, four or five hundred years ago are very different to what's happening today. What material difference would it make to your religious freedom or indeed to Britain as a country if King Charles was to decide tomorrow that he wanted to become a Catholic? Well, I recognise that we don't live in the days of the Stuarts, where you know it was more nakedly, openly uh, a concern, and, and I mean it was it was something which was built into the Constitution of sixteen eighty eight because of that fear. But I would I would still take the view that there's a threat to the liberties of the United Kingdom if the throne wasn't Protestant. I mean, I would feel much more secure with a Protestant throne as is currently enshrined. It was evidenced in the coronation. Uh, than I would if that was abandoned to allow uh, a Catholic monarch. I still think that while things have changed radically in the years since then, since the revolution of 1688, I still think that there's a a risk that a, a Catholic monarch would have a loyalty outside to the Pope, which would compromise his or her position within 
Britain, uh, a complicate the whole issue too of relationship with the Church of England. I mean, all of those things would come into play. So, I mean, people have said attempts been made. I mean, there have been a number of minor changes to the constitution where you know the. But if if it came to the bit where the monarch was no longer going to have to be a Protestant, I mean, even Gordon Brown, people admitted at that time this would be very seismic in terms of its significance. So I mean, we're 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 looking at big issues there that are unlikely to. I think would be the can of worms would be opened. So my view is better just to stay with where we are and not change it. Talking about opening cans of worms, <laughs> you supported Brexit, didn't you? Um, what What are your views on that now, several years after the event, reflecting on it? <laughs> well, I voted to leave um, and I would still vote to leave, but I just regret the way it all opened up into chaos, not only nationally, I mean nationally and locally, it went belly up, really. Um, perhaps more thought should have been given into the whole thing before there was a vote, you know, and perhaps it should have been a weighted majority. Uh, that's something which I, I wonder at quite a lot. Um, my mother-in-law, who lived in Fermanagh, and who's no longer with us, I mean, she, she, uh, she voted to stay uh, because she thought the border issue would be a problem. My son-in-law was the same because he's from Permana. Um, I lived up here, and and you know you weren't near the border, so you didn't think any of that through. I still think though that if there was a will, there was a way. You know, and I, I do believe that if there had been the right atmosphere and right relationship between Britain and the EU, both to play ball, an arrangement could have been made. You know that would have left a lot less angst and annoyance. We're now left in an awful mess, as we know, stating the obvious there with this protocol and the Windsor framework and. So while I think a nation has a right to leave any organisation, I mean, we have the right to leave the EU, and the EU wanted to make an example of Britain because they didn't want countries leaving, uh, I just think that it was badly handled by a lot of, a lot of the, play, the key players. You know, uh, if, you, if you had known in 2016 that the choice was going to be between the entire UK staying in the EU or... Northern Ireland having an Irish sea border with yeah. Britain, which would you have gone for? I would have gone to stay in the EU. But it would have been a bit of a Hobson's choice when you should have the choice to leave, you know. But uh, as I say, I just think that it took off without thought. I'm currently reading Johnson at 10, you know, the, the series of books on the Prime Minister's, and this is on Boris's um, Brexit strategy, and I was covered obviously in detail. And you're thinking, what a shambles, you know, and that's just one element of the shambles that went right down the line and went off in all directions. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm open enough to accept that, you know, it just did not work out as I'd hoped it would do, and uh, uh, we're in a mess. And after Boris Johnson betrayed the DUP with that incredible suddenness in 2019, you spoke out to say that it was almost enough to make me question the value of the union. And I remember being astonished at those words when I read them because there was a there was a sort of raw honesty to them, but the sort of honesty that you don't really very often get in public. People might say that privately to you, but they don't say it on the record. How how do you feel about that four years or so after the event? Still feel the same, uh, and I suppose my the advantage I have is I'm not beholden to anyone. You know, that sounds a bit arrogant. I don't mean it in that way, but I'm not beholden to any organisation. I can sort of say what I want. In a, in, a, in a to an extent, we obviously have to be careful to some degree what we say, but that was come to heart. And I, I think at that time too, I talked about how we were like the unwanted child in the house. You know, we were allowed to wander about the house, but the front door was open. If you wouldn't mind leaving, we'd be very happy. Now I know there are there are those who support the union within the broader UK, but um, 
if anything, Sam, since then, my view really has been that I do wonder at the future of the union, and I think we need to wake it up and recognise that. We, we're, Emperor's got no clothes, it's just all over the place. I mean, people need to open up and recognise that he hasn't got any clothes. And we're, we're down a cul-de-sac and we're going deeper and deeper down it. And at the minute, all these years on from when I, when I said that, we say it was four years ago I said that, I mean, I, I would say my position is even more strongly a concern for how we go forward. Because we've got this mess that we're in. I heard people, well-meaning people, have been interviewed there in London Derry on, the, on Saturday at the Apprentice Boys Parade and the, the general consensus was, no, don't go back to Stormont. Uh, we dig in our heels till we get, till we get change. You hear the same thing from a range of good politicians and good friends. But my argument is, what change are you going to get? Where is this going to come from? Unless legislation can make changes at Westminster that the EU are happy with, we're not going to get any further concessions. We've had the protocol, we had the Windsor framework, we're stuck. And that's the thing now, I think, those who say we don't go back need to set out, how long are we away for? 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, forever? And if that's the case, what's the alternative? Um, someone said going back to the stand taken by our fathers in 1912, but that, revolved, that involved compromise. They didn't end up with what they wanted. You know, so... We need to recognise we're we're in a place we don't want to be, but rather than wandering further down the road to nowhere, we need to take stock of what we're where we're, we're at. And if there's no Stormont, if the DUP stay out of Stormont for even let's say five years, let alone ten years, what do you think that does for Northern Ireland as a society? Well, I think that weakens our well, it weakens our control over over affairs. We had that problem in 1985-86 when the Anglo-Irish Agreement came in. We were bystanders. Again, that was handled badly, but that's another story. Um, these things were all handled badly. But we, we're now in a position where we have the opportunity to be active participants to some degree. And if we don't go back, well, then we're just going to become bystanders again. And bystanders in a different environment from the 1980s. I mean, there's clearly now a whole new ball game with the EU element of Britain being out of it, Ireland being in it. The Irish economy being much stronger, uh, Britain's economy weak. There's 101 things we could say, but I think we would just be standing watching it all happening. And there'll be those who will have control, who will make the decisions. And that's why we come back to this thing with all no surrender, don't move, don't shift. Uh, it's, it's, unless there's a, there's a miracle, it's not going to not not end well. It won't end in the relief of the city, and I definitely will not. <laughs> About two years ago, you said that the Protestants who had fought at the Somme, the Ulster Protestants who had gone and fought and in many cases died there, were fighting for an empire which is gone, yeah. for a nation which was essentially Protestant in essence, which is gone, against absorption into an Irish Catholic state, which is gone. Much of what our forefathers were fighting for and against has gone. Yeah. What... Some people might wonder, still ties you to Britain, if so much of that has gone? I suppose there's a nostalgia, uh, there's a deep-seated sort of thing in your psyche that you were brought up, born born and brought up within unionism, uh, within that broader orangeism that sort of was part of society, even if you weren't in the orange order. There's, there's something about it that gives you, makes your heart beat faster, that this part of you, and yet... All of that is becoming less significant and more removed from where we're at. So, yeah, I mean, uh, at the minute, and again, there's a fear, I suppose, that the devil you know is better than the one you don't. And there are certain advantages, clearly, from the status quo, but it's unravelling. 
unraveling from many points of view. Um, people think I'm overly pessimistic. You know, if, you, if you look at the, the union and the, the number of Roman Catholic people who could be persuaded to stand by the union, that there's there, you know, there's no guarantee the union's gone. But I think the whole flavour of the whole thing has changed. Um, and we're in a fundamentally different position now. But there's so few people willing to say that publicly. I think people are thinking it. Um, and ultimately, too, I mean, you, what you quoted there, I, I more or less repeated one day on, on Talkback in more recent times, um, when I was almost Malachi O'Doherty about his book. And uh, again, I got a lot of support from people who would, wouldn't want to be openly saying it, but he came to me and said, you're saying what the rest of us are thinking. So there are people out there who agree with that. We just need to question. And as I've said before as well, like I'm, a, I'm, I'm an Ulster man, but I'm an Irish man. I mean, I was born an Irish man. And people again in my community keep saying, oh, no, 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 we weren't you, we weren't Irish, but we're born. We are Irish men. And, you know, it's nonsense to believe we're not. <laughs> Geographically, we're born on the island of Ireland. Uh, and that Irishness, I think, we need to rediscover some of that. We've washed our hands of it completely. A um, hundred years ago, our forefathers were happy to be Irish, to be seen to be Irish. Uh, but now we turn away from it. Oh, no, I know there's two sides to that. There's a, there's the political campaigns of the likes of Sinn Féin and so on to make it less easy for us to feel that we're Irish. But why why would we you know, let them set that agenda? When you were a young man joining the DUP in the 1960s, late uh, 1960s, 60s, yeah. um, you presumably greatly feared Irish unity. Yeah. Do you still fear it to the same extent? No, it's a different a different animal now. I mean, the fear then was very much based on the fear of Rome rule, the fear that, you know, our, our Protestant identity would be lost. That Protestantism, I suppose, fundamentally was my was the rationale behind my unionism, and still would be, you know, mainly. There are economic arguments and health service arguments, all these things, but, um, and again, the status quo is be you're better off with what you have, but uh, it's, the, it's the fear of, of you know your own faith being lost in in the wash and uh, in the late sixties in the days of the Protestant Unionist Party, um, yeah, I mean we've been very concerned about you know that our faith would be gone, that our Protestant identity, our orange identity, would be lost. And I suppose to some to a large degree, I still have to ask that question. I mean, those who want to push forward for a new Ireland, and there's lots of people you know who are setting up think tanks and all on those lines, need to sort of ask the questions of you know what what future is there. For those traditions, my tradition, my my identity in that in that new arrangement, and that's where I suppose people would say, well, don't go down that path because you'll you'll not you'll not be able to retain your Protestant orange tradition; it'll be lost. And is there is there a fear um, that you would have that uh, there are lots of promises being made about what, for instance, yeah. would um, pertain in terms of the rights of the Orange Order to march yeah. and maybe the 12th would be a public holiday and all sorts of different things there. But once the vote goes a certain way, that's it. And um, are you actually guaranteed that those things will that's, last? That's the worry. I mean, it's easy to come out with honeyed words, you know, and Sinn Féin have been doing a lot of that recently about preserving our rights. My concern is that they mightn't be preserved, and that's where, again, there needs to be a proper, robust, detailed conversation that might have to last over a long period of time. Um, and uh, I, I think that nationalism as a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a philosophy has a sort of blind spot, I think, about how deeply held some of those things are to us. Um, 
Now, my Protestantism isn't tied in any way to constitutional arrangements, or shouldn't be. You know, my faith should be able to operate in any environment, um, as long as there's a liberty to operate, to do it. Uh, but when you start to attach that orange tradition to it, you've got history, you've got politics all coming into play, and it's just how that would all pan out in in the in the end of the of the game. I I would be concerned that we would lose stuff in there, lose some of our the key elements of our identity. Uh, there have been lots of unionists who have said that it's a it's basically a stupid idea for unionists to get involved in discussions about Irish unity because essentially what they do is make it a more appealing proposition. So if they take some of the harder edges off it yeah. in a border poll, actually it's a less scary idea and it might actually win. What what do you say to those people? Are, are, you, are, you, are you prepared to sit down and talk with people about how it might be a better idea? Yes, I would be, but I can understand why people, some people would think there's no point in getting involved because once you do, then you open the door, the door opens and, and it's very difficult to shut it again. But I, I still think that um, we are in an inevitable move towards that when it comes, I don't know, but there's an inevitability in my mind that we are moving towards some form of New Ireland, hopefully new and not not absorption. Uh, but there is all sorts of questions have to be raised, but we need to ask the questions and we need to ask for answers and we need to talk to people. That shouldn't mean that suddenly you're then thinking, you know, we're, we're, we're going down that road. We may not. We may decide on the evidence what you've produced here, but we don't want to go down that road. You know, but at the minute we're not we're not talking. We're 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 closing our eyes and pretending there's no problem. Uh, and th- this is the problem with unionism. We're in denial, constant denial. Um, and um, to talk to to these groups that are calling for New Ireland to me is not a not a not an indication of weakness. It's an indication of strength. And you you come across in those comments and lots of the things that you say as somebody who despite your background as a very staunch unionist, somebody who was there at the very outset um, with Paisley in the DUP, somebody who's open-minded, you're willing clearly to discuss these other ideas about the future. Have Ireland's Future or any of these other groups who have sprung up in recent years to promote the idea of a new Ireland, have they ever approached you? Have they asked you to talk to them? No. There were indications that they might do, but nothing ever came of it. Um, And again, I know that some of my friends would think it was madness to even hold out an olive branch towards them but I think we need to probe and in talking to nationalists uh, the more you probe the more the more hopefully they will learn about us and our concerns and the more then we will learn about them and their concerns I mean it is a state in the obvious because there's two sides to these things the history of Ireland is just a patchwork quilt of, of misunderstandings and misconceptions um, and it's just all black and white orange and green but it's not that way at all and a better understanding of these issues I think would help but both sides have to engage in that so so in talking about it there's no foregone conclusion you know I think it's wrong to say that because you would speak about it that suddenly you then agreed that that's the way to go I might at the end of that process think oh that the future lies within the union uh, but we are in a new dispensation since Brexit and uh you know, for the sake of our children and grandchildren, we, we need to make some effort to try to dig deeper and explore all the opportun- all the possibilities. Um, and it's not to say that we've surrendered anything, but we're recognising certain things. This is a there is a reluctance on the part of unionism to, to acknowledge that publicly anyway. 
And how significant in your open-minded approach to this, your willingness to engage with people who are completely opposed to you politically in terms of your unionist, they're a nationalist or they're from a Republican background, how significant in that is what Ian Paisley did at the end of his life in going into power sharing? Hugely significant for me, uh, hugely so. Uh, I made that point in the Paisley documentaries as well. Uh, Ian, on the day of the the, the, the big event at Stormont when Tony Blair and the whole lot were there, the cast of thousands, when it all got off the ground, he quoted the Ecclesiastes about a time to build, a time to tear down, a time of war, a time of peace. I thought that was so appropriate for that moment because he himself was acknowledging that there were times for certain things that the time of peace had come. And I believe that if, if he was alive today... I mean, Ian Pinsey to me was many things... He was a tremendous evangelical Protestant and, and, and his faith was, was something which influenced me greatly. He was a man of strength. Now, he, he had many many weaknesses, but I mean, that's not that's totally natural and normal for all of us at the same. But he was an Irishman. And I think he recognised that. And more and more towards the end of his time, he became very much aware of the fact that he, you know, he and Bertie Ahern were both Irish men seeking to reach out to each other. Now, Ian wouldn't have had that view back in the 60s. I don't think now. I don't want to be second guessing anyone, but I, I don't think he would because then we felt that Ireland was the well, it was a Jack Lynch and the Sean Lamas snowballs. So that kind of confirms the point that there probably wasn't much love lost or much interest in reaching down across the border. But I think in the later years, yes, and that that I suppose has had a big impact on my own my own thinking. I mean, that, that in some ways is an astonishing thing if you think about the broad arc of history and how people yeah. change and circumstances change. I was, I was doing a little bit of reading and M. Paisley in 1964 uh, complained that uh, two uh, Protestant evangelical fundamentalists, William John Greer and Norman Porter, had attended dinners at which Catholics and ecumenical professors had been present. And this was a huge row at the time and he was furious about this. I mean, to, to go from that yes. to being willing yes. to sit down and obviously he, he was willing to govern with Sinn Féin, with, with Martin McGuinness, and for you to think at least open-mindedly about, well, maybe a new Ireland, a united Ireland of some sort might be possible. That's incredible, isn't it? Well, it is. I don't deny that. And I mean, I, if I was talking to the old Wallace Thompson from the 1960s or the young Wallace Thompson, he would have been, but going back in time, he would say, what are you, what, how did you arrive at that conclusion? But, you know... Life and experience, your own personal views, and the breadth of what's happening around you. Things change, and we're back to there's a time for every purpose under heaven. Um, and I have, I mean, this is not something that I've thought of, and you quoted there from a number of years back. This has been something that's been in, in my mind for quite a number of years. Um, and there will be those who will say, oh, Thompson's just failed, he's a Monday, and he's run away, and that's it. But I, I mean, it, the problem is when you talk to people privately, then from within your own family and your, your people that you know just through life, they'll say, you know, we need to recognise that these are realities that we have to face. So in, there, there, there is more, you're saying there is more pragmatism and willingness to think seriously about these issues beneath the surface yes. in unionism yeah. than there is on the surface. Far more, yes. There's a, it's actually quite interesting who, you know, when you, you realise that when you say something publicly, the number of people who will then say to you, you know, you're right, but we can't say it. And that's through the loyal orders, unionist parties and everything, you know, churches. Uh, but within evangelicalism, I mean, there's no, there's no need, as I was saying earlier on, there's no need to wed that to unionism. That maybe in some ways has been the weakness 
of our evangelical cause and it's been tied to Union Jack and it has been sort of seen as something that's uh, British and I suppose that was a problem at the time of the Reformation that was seen as being imported in from a Protestant nation so we, we've probably continued on that same path of of our Roman Catholic fellow countrymen seeing our faith as something alien to them because it's got all this red, white and blue wrap and orange wrapping around it questions there for us too uh, to answer you know as to how we detach that and if you were in an all-Ireland scenario how would your faith as an evangelical Christian how would it operate um, but it's it's that's part of the problem but you're part of the issue but you're going to then have to address your heritage your your Protestant heritage which is political constitutional you know and how you deal with that I don't know that's what it needs to be the discussion you have spent a lifetime in politics and around politics what are your reflections now? You're 70 years old, I think. Yes. Uh, what, are, what are your reflections on what unionism in your lifetime has got right, what's got wrong, and where do you think it's going? Looking over the 100 years, it's got an awful lot of things wrong. Uh, unionism as, a, as an ideology is, is fine, um, completely fine. It's a totally uh, legitimate view to express from all different angles and the number of people take different angles on it religious, economic, whatever, cultural but unionism has been in the back foot since the state was founded it was forced into compromises when the state was founded it floundered around leadership trying to make sense out of a very difficult scenario I mean, I, I, you know, you don't want to be hypercritical of our founding fathers because they were faced with with impenetrable challenges, you know, the violence was going on, sectarianism was rampant, they were trying to create structures of government and they were getting the support from Dublin to create their own structures here, so forth and so on but they were always in the back foot and quickly had that tradition of independent unionism raising its voice and saying this is not good enough um, so we didn't handle it well uh, so to be answer your question there'd be a lot more things wrong than we got right and you let you, you come up to 1968 we were in denial up until that point and it all blew up on us and they didn't get it right after that either and continually have they've gone down roads that they've got themselves stuck and they've had difficulty getting back out of them and then they go down another road that's just as bad um, keep rerouting themselves down it's called the sacks uh, so Yes, the ideology is fine, argued indeed, and, and I mean, that's, that's grand, um, but uh, we, <laughs> unionism as a philosophy probably was in many ways doomed because of Ireland's nature, uh, the fact that the North tried to car- was carved off from the South, even within the North, not all six counties were happy for Manna, Tyrone were never happy, you were kind of trying to run into a corner to keep what you had, and that's never a good way to have a, you know, a, for any philosophy or ideology to have to work like that it becomes more and more difficult and then, do you, then now you've got a position where do you partition again do you, you know, do you accept that demographic change is such that we have to run again to the walls and shut the gates uh, or do we recognise that you can't keep doing this and that we need to recognise that there are fundamental issues that have always been there Sam really from, from centuries ago that we need to now recognise and try and address just a, fi- a final question. Do, do, you, do you ever wonder if Terence O'Neill had been able to push through the reforms that he was trying to do yeah. or if Brian Faulkner had been able to make power-sharing work yeah. that Northern Ireland might be in a better place and unionism might be in a more secure place? I do wonder at that. Uh, 
sadly O'Neill was sort of patrician and condescending in his attitude and patronising and it didn't work uh, Roman Catholics just felt felt be, they were being uh, taken for granted and treated as, as you know as just those who could be turned into Protestants uh, give them a colour TV or whatever it might be but um, the the idea of the reforms if the reforms had gone through with more speed I don't know because ultimately you could argue that Sinn Féin or IRA was waiting in the wings to take advantage of whatever came out of that um, it's one of those things that's difficult to say but I believe if Brian Faulkner had maybe been in position uh, earlier than he was it might have been easier to get reforms through um, at an earlier stage and it would have settled things down quite a bit but um, there was a certain inevitability about what happened I just feel you know just took off and just continued to grow and so we don't we never know really um, I just think unionism was was in trouble and O'Neill wasn't really the man to and Clark who came after him wasn't the man either I mean, that was a series of TV about the Prime Ministers and it was an eye opener in terms of how ill-equipped they were to deal with what was what was facing them Willis Thompson, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.